Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Oppen. Joe, you know, I think we often, you know, disparage movies that, that come out on Netflix or maybe the whole Netflixification of movies. But uh, man, we were just talking off mic. There's there's some stuff to be excited about coming coming down the road uh, from them this year. Yeah, I don't. I mean, I don't know if we're disparaging. I mean, I think I effortlessly disparage just through my tone of voice and general disposition. But I think we're like we're cautious. But it was just like you know, in terms of like the what you know, streaming services like Netflix and Amazon are now doing. They're sort of like they're taking on a, a sort of middle class of movies that have since kind of like if not vanished from movie theaters or in danger of vanishing, or, you know, they've been relegated to the margins so far that people didn't even know that they've been released a lot of the time, which might be true for two of the films we're discussing today. (laughs) You know, Netflix has like taken on a stable of like pretty, pretty great directors, two of which, you know, we've been big fans of and supporters of like, uh, Jeremy Saunier's new movie is coming out at the end of September. Yeah, uh, Hold the Dark. That trailer's good. Haven't watched it yet, but I'm, I'm excited about that one. Mm-hmm. Love Wolf movies. Um, yes. <laughs> and uh, and then Gareth Evans' new film, uh, The Apostle, not to be confused with Robert Duvall's movie from the late 90s, but um, <laughs> that's coming out, I believe, in October. So, like... You know, Amazon is kind of like similar in terms of like taking on iconic signature filmmakers who have like a real idiosyncratic vision, like Lynn Ramsey with um, You Were Never Really Here and, you know, Spike Lee with Chirac. And, you know, they just like they've taken they've made a sort of home for like people to get work out, you know, still on a certain impressive scale that might be threatened by the sort of traditional studio model. Yeah. Because like, you know, it's just, it's not, it's not a given, you know, like, and with the two movies we'll be discussing today, Support the Girls and Arizona, like, they're kind of, you know, like, they're, they're of a, of a type of smaller independent release that used to have a decent amount of traction, you know, in, in terms of like getting into theaters, you know, even if it was just a couple of art houses in any major city, but now it's just like, you know, support the girls luckily has enough sort of like uh, critical backing mm-hmm. in order to, to have it make enough of a splash. But, you know, our, the other movie, Arizona, which is a directorial debut, but, you know, features like a pretty impressive ensemble. Like, I don't like, I think pretty much anybody I would mention it to would be like, what's that movie? Where is it playing? Oh, like, it's not really registering in terms of like a sizable release. Is it even coming out in Portland? I don't think so. Uh, I looked at all the usual places and have seen no sign of it. It looks like a, you know, pretty much a VOD movie for sure. Which I don't think it is. Like, I think that um, its distributor, which is RLJE, correct? That is correct. Yeah. 
I think they do strictly theatrical and then eventually like after a sort of window of time, it'll come out on VOD and probably get released to, you know, some of the streaming platforms. But like, I think they do focus on a theatrical run. They're putting out Panos Kasmatos's new film, Mandy with Nicolas Cage, which we'll be covering in depth in a couple episodes. Um, But like they, they've, they're similar in terms of like taking on, pretty like uh, idiosyncratic filmmakers like Panos and like, you know, Craig Zoller's last movie brawl in cell block 99, like genre films, but like very distinct genre films. Mm. And, uh, and it, it's, it's just weird. Like having them be sort of like big, big in terms of like the response they can elicit in a crowd. If the crowd is there, you know, because I saw Brawl in Cell Block 99 um, in a, like a sold out screening at Beyond Fest last year. Gosh, and, that would uh, have been great. It, yeah, no, it's like, and it played the audience perfectly. Mm-hmm. Just like the, the like reversals of like, you know, like laughing to being horrified to just being stricken to being overwhelmed and just like this weird ecstatic outpouring. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, knowing that that's possible, that the movie, you know, hits those notes and like plays the audience so perfectly and then kind of feeling like it didn't really play much beyond that. You know what I mean? Like it it sort of trickled through theaters, you know, and like then lived on, you know, VOD after that. But like it's just it's it's a weird sort of limbo that movies seem to be falling into. But, you know, like it's the the two movies we'll be discussing eventually like you know who knows we'll we get keep there. talking about we keep talking about talking about them but um <laughs> yeah, there there is a feel uh at least for uh support the girls which the filmmaker's name is andrew bujalski bujalski <laughs> <laughs> i think that's how i believe said. there is a question mark in his name <laughs> <laughs> um <laughs> Like there is a there's a sense that with like this and one of his previous films results that like the subject matter, which like this film support the girls is about, you know, essentially a like Hooters type restaurant um, and the double whammies. Yeah, double whammies um, that like a a whole ensemble of like women uh, are running it. And it's just a, a day in the life type movie. Um, or a day and a half in the life type movie. <laughs> and uh, it's like following them. And you could see that this could easily be episodic. It could easily translate to television, much like one of his previous films, Results, which was about, uh, you know, somebody running a gym. So there's something ab- that about kind of like marginalized life, marginalized American mediocre life that like... Uh, Bujalski, he uh, he he finds like a, cer- a certain poetry in and a certain sort of like dramatic oomph in or like maybe a lack of drama, you know, and there's like a naturalism to it that he's really drawn to. And but there just seems to be like, well, there's enough loose threads in this that like you could tease this out to be a series. Mm hmm. At the same time, there's a sense that there's maybe not enough grit or edge to sustain a series. So it exists in that weird, like, middle realm where it's like, well, it's not quite a television show, but it's like there's just not enough that resolves itself in terms of being like a a straightforward, streamlined feature. Right. 
but you know like the movie has a charm and like movies like this you know that used to exist um like there there seems to be a sense of space to them and a sense of like ease in terms of like the narrative as as much as the movie clips along at like a pretty reasonable pace like there's a sense of kind of like unhurried space to it Mm -hmm. and like i think that in terms of the accelerationist uh oblivion set like you know trajectory we're on right now just i mean just in terms of like you get on the internet and you're like oh we're going to hell really fast um (laughs) Like seeing a movie that takes its time and is about people relating, like does feel like a sort of welcome relief and a reprieve. Mm. Um, But because of the lack of variety in movies, a movie when it's positively sort of taken in, you were mentioning, you know, via, via text last week that was like, are we a little out of proportion with how positively this movie is getting received? (laughs) You know, just mm-hmm. like be, because there isn't anything quite like it at the moment, people seem to like gobble it up with an intensity that seems to be out of proportion with the work itself, maybe. Yeah. I mean, specifically certain critics that I follow. Uh, th- that's what really prompted that as I watched the movie and I was like, gosh, that was uh, everything you're saying. Pleasant, atypical mm-hmm. for a movie of, of this day and age. Like it's like an adult comedy, but not just like a comedy. It's not broad and, and stupid. It's actually a, all the things you said. It's about real people. So yeah, that makes it a, a sort of a unicorn in movie theaters these days. But then, but then I start to notice like it, it really what it falls into is this a, a thing that uh, I think we'll be talking about for a long time is like the response to the response. Like, so Critics liked this movie, or and some of the critics that really went for it, that gave it very high reviews, are like the the most nitpicky of all critics, in my opinion. Like uh, the Richard Brody's Richard Brody of the New Yorker, uh, Mike D'Angelo used to write for the AV Club. I think he still does. He's a freelancer. Like uh, critics, I like, but I'm often sort of like pulling my hair out when I read them because I'm like, gosh, they nitpick stuff, you know, or or but they're like that vital voice, that contrarian voice in a good way. They mm-hmm. really went for this movie in a way that I was like, wow, I thought that was like, uh, you know, it's like a one of those good movies. It was fun. Yeah, it's a yeah. good, enjoyable movie. But like, I think I don't want to speak for these critics. I just think in the world we, the film criticism specifically, where it's at right now is like the movie either has to be the worst movie of the year or something that you give like four and a half out of five stars or really glowing, like big, like bright, shining review. And I yeah. noticed a lot of that for Support the Girls where I was like, wow, yeah, it, it did feel like man, like it, it, it's a sign of the times in, in the critical realm. And a lot of it is like, I can't disagree because this is a movie that, you know, I liked and I, I would <laughs> like it if more people saw it. Um, hopefully some people do, you know, whether it's available at a theater nearby or you, you get to rent it uh, on VOD. Cause that's where it's going to live eventually and stream somewhere. But mm. I want that to happen. But uh these critics are like, they really, I think they're sort of forced into a corner where they, to get attention or to justify even reviewing a movie this small, you know, kind of using their space, their endless space on a website still. Like there is still this weird thing of like, well, don't devote too much time to something like that. Cause it's not going to bring in 
clicks or read, you know, people reading it. But right. So they have to swing the hard the other way to get attention for it, to justify that they want to um, cover said movie. I, I'm, I'm definitely speculating, but I know enough of how these things work, uh, having some experience in that realm that like, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's too bad, but like, uh, that's where I think like, I, I don't want to toot our horn, but I guess I will. It's like, I like that you and I can exist. And especially lately this August month, like we're talking about a lot mm-hmm. of movies that are good, you know, good movies, but how do we convince the audience? It, it Maybe there isn't a way. We just have to be satisfied that like, look, we're going to praise the movie, but let's also like, I mean, I don't, I don't think it's a five-star movie, but it's, it's good, you know? And uh, I, that's okay. You know, question mark. Yeah. It's Pujalski. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's interesting how like, you know, there, like we exist in a sort of like climate and time of, extremes so like you look at a for for a movie to sort of justify its existence it almost needs to be an extreme like well why would i see that in the theater it needs to be the utmost of something yep and so like oftentimes like for us like if there's a movie that's of a small enough scale that's going to be struggling for eyeballs and ears hopefully if they're listening um like we and we're not entirely enthusiastic about it. We'll be, you know, like hesitant to like to review it because if like we're taking it to task and really critically picking it apart when it's having a hard enough time right. with an uphill battle of getting an audience, it just feels like, you know, like kicking, you know, kicking something that's already down. Yeah. So it's just like, but but in that, it's not really like giving the benefit of the doubt one to the work itself or to the audience that could potentially be there for it. You know, it's like, it's, you know, like obliterating that subtlety and that the sort of sort of nuanced discussion of something really does like cheapen everything culturally, eventually, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, like it's I, I'm like again like I'm glad a movie like this exists that it that it elbows for space and that there is something kind of like subtle and unhurried about it and you know but like it it sort of has the ladybird effect of like ladybird's a great movie yeah. but like the sense of like it sort of like uh being treated as a savior was like out of proportion with, I just think it's unfair one to the movie itself. It's just like, let it breathe. Jesus Christ. Like, right. Like, you know, like, let it, let the, like, just make sure a culture exists that can like, that can sustain a variety. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like, cause, cause then the, the wrong lessons are learned where it's like, we need a, like we need 10 ladybirds, like in, like, now in production it's just like well ladybird was an anomaly and it was like as sort of was as successful as it was because of like the rarity of like attentiveness it brought to itself to Mm -hmm. the like to you know the the subject matter to the writing itself to like you know so but like i don't know like it's just (laughs) the extremity (laughs) is like so off-putting at times it is Uh, clearly i mean it rubs you and me the wrong way it's usually the thing that i just get like like I, here, I want to I want to talk about this movie. You know, we should we should we should zero in on some things that we liked or or whatever. But like, yeah, it's it's it often it's it's like 
it, it's a, it's a different time. Like you and I have a different approach and I guess that's good in, in terms of like standing out from the, from the pact, but it's also like, we're kind of the, one of these weird little outliers out there that like, we'll just have a conversation about good movies. And when, when did that become not enough reason to go see a movie? Like, yeah, it's, it's a strange, that's a strange well, thing. Well, yeah, it's, it's the same thing as like, eh, it's good, but so what? Like, right, right. like in terms of, like a a movie existing, like justifying its existence. It's like, it's not enough that it's good. Why not? Like what, what else is there? Like what the fuck? Like, because there's so much competing for people's attention that, and like people need a reason to sort of like thin the herd and narrow it down. Like they need, they need to, it needs to just like be elevated by some X factor, you know? And like whatever that whatever arbitrary X factor it is at, at this point is just sort of like left week to week in terms of what's trending or what's bubbling, you know, in the surface. But like this movie, all right, let's let's focus on this movie. God let's do damn it, it. yeah, because um, we've reviewed several Bujalski movies like uh, on this yeah. podcast. Yeah, Computer Chess. Oh man, that was one. That was that was a movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. That was a IMAX, a traditional <gasps> IMAX presents movie. That would have uh, been amazing. <laughs> let's do it. Christopher Nolan presents Computer Chess. <laughs> yeah, the Adjust Your Tracking Film Festival. Um, so, so yeah, he's Bujalski. He's kind of considered, you know, like one of the sort of torch torchbearers of uh, mumblecore. Um, He's since transitioned out of like, this is not, nobody mumbles in this movie for the most part, thankfully. (laughs) And like, he's, he's luckily kind of like transitioned out of what would be, you know, typical mumblecore, uh, you know, like a a sort of archetype, you Mm -hmm. know, to like, to, you know, more kind of marginalized type, like what, what's considered boring culture, you know, like strip mall culture and stuff like that. Like, right. That they usually gets kind of like largely ignored, you know, if it's not being sort of demonized, you know, uh, and so he's he's sort of planting himself in the margins and sort of like letting these characters, you know, have their have their spotlight, and um, you know, there's like there's there there is something nice about how unhurried and naturalistic the movie feels. It's got like a really strong ensemble led by Regina Hall, yeah, and uh. Haley Lou Richardson and she was in a movie called Columbus last year. That was a very nice, quiet movie. Like, yeah, yeah. I've been, I've been meaning meaning to see that it's on my watch list. There you go. Well, we had, it did well at our theater. That was a small movie that the distributor really found an audience for it. That is a, that is a very particular, like how well that one did. That is a strange movie in that case. So very cool. Um, and, uh, James LeGro, who yes. you know, you'll know from, you know, just working for decades now, who looked weirdly in angles like Guy Pierce, who yes. uh Dolsky worked with on results. <laughs> yes. Um but you know, he's just a a schlubby uh Hooters restaurant type owner. And um it's just over the course of a day where Regina Hall, the lead, is kind of scrambling to keep this operation, this ragtag operation afloat and together while her own personal life is kind of coming, you know, a part of the seams. And, uh, the cast is rounded out by, there's a, like, I think it's her first movie, but Shana McHale, mm-hmm. who plays Danielle. Um, she's incredible. Yes. And she's the rapper in real life. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. She she goes by Jungle Pussy in real life. And um, like I looked her up. I was like, this woman's great. Who is she? Oh, shit. I already listened to her. Um, <laughs> so uh, like the movie is just like filled with, you know, like nice moments, nice asides, uh, like enough kind of loose ends in terms of like introducing drama, but not really resolving it, that it feels subtle, but also sort of like unfinished in a weird way. Mm hmm. And then in the last couple minutes, we won't spoil anything, but like I was like looking at the time left and I was like, how's this movie going to wrap itself up? You know, like similarly to like blind spotting, which kind of like brings on a, a very over the top climax. Mm. There was a sense in while watching blind spotting that I thought the movie might just sort of naturalistically drift off and just be like, oh, that's, that's an interesting kind of subtle ending. I nope. assume the same was going to happen. For, nope. <laughs> Buckle up. <laughs> you like spoken word? Um, so with like support the girls, it was like, it was clear there's a few minutes left. Like what, like what's going to happen to sort of button this movie. And like, it's, it takes place on a, on a rooftop overlooking, you know, what's, what's, what's sort of like is the terrain of this movie, which is just like strip malls, the kind of wastelandish expanse of like mediocrity of like, you know, middle America boredom. Um, and like they're, they're all on a rooftop, like looking out on the scenery and the closing moment to me was just so perfect mm. that like the movie lands in a way that like really made it like recommendable for me. Whereas like the rest kind of felt sort of like, you know, subtle to the point of like, I'm not really sure what the purpose is in that sort of, ugly uh kind of like compromise you have to make where like it's good but so what like that the to me that's depressing that that mm -hmm. argument you have with yourself the it's good but so what right but like the movie really concludes strongly mm -hmm. and i think that like it's such a beautiful buttoning moment mm -hmm. that um that it may be like sort of like re kind of felt like a a shruggy response to the movie mm -hmm. The, the death rattle of culture, which is M-E-H, you know, like, yeah, but I, yeah, I think, I think the movie does sort of like land strongly. Um, and, you know, it's if, if you're looking for a reprieve, I think this is a, a worthwhile one for your your less than 90 minutes. You know what I what I really took away from it, what I enjoyed the most about this movie, and I think it's pretty subtle overall especially because this isn't a big broad comedy. And I think just even describing that it's set at like a Hooters type bar, I think everybody would immediately yeah. assume something big and dumb with it. And right, right, right. that was great. That that's, a, that's what I would expect out of this filmmaker. And it's, it's kind of his thing, but this one really does a great job of um, without being literally about this. It, it sort of portrays like what, it's so sad to even describe this as a middle class existence because it, it's what this movie shows is how non-existent a middle class is basically in the in yeah. the small parts of America, which are most of it, you know, and the strip mall areas everywhere across the country. Like uh, most people have to get jobs like this shitty jobs, like not ones that I think a lot of people would would want. Right. And it's it's almost like this movie is like political without being political, because if <clears throat> if the buffoon we have in the White House right now is trying to uh, constantly maybe uh, 
sort of impress upon his followers how much good he's doing. Often he talks about, look at all the jobs we've created in the last couple of years. That's something that you hear from the White House these days a lot. And every presidency lately does that. But he really gloms onto it. But it's like, maybe we should be focusing on better jobs for people, you know? And that's a very complex, huge thing, like, and maybe unrealistic. But I liked how Support the Girls got into the nitty gritty of like, when you are when you have like your choices in front of you are like someone says it at the end. In fact, I think it's uh, the Danielle, the character says like, there's plenty of shitty jobs out there, you know, like people for, for uh, like the last decade plus have been struggling to find work, but there has always been a lot of shitty jobs out there. And Mm -hmm. that's kind of all there is, you know? So if Trump is sitting there saying like, Oh, we're getting more jobs, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. It's a lot of shitty jobs and people need work. But like, what do you do once you got that job? And then this movie portrays that really well. Like the sort of like daily indignities you have to deal with mm-hmm. um, an asshole checked out boss owner that really doesn't care, but is doesn't realize how lucky he is that he has an amazing manager, the Regina Hall character. Like this movie spotlights like the people that make shitty jobs like that actually not just work but like they make it work for the employees that they are um taking care of like Mm. she's a great character in that way like she makes that job like doable for her her employees and without her that owner would have nothing and the movie does sort of break that down without ever being sort of like a boring didactic yeah it's it's it tells it through a very nice realistic story about real people, but like threads you through like, gosh, like this is what we're all fighting over every time there's like a new election going on. And it's like these jobs, like, you know, it's, it's almost like the movie saying like, why are these the things that, that we people like, it's more than just jobs, job, jobs. Like you need, like, well, yeah, there's a shame. There's, there's like, there's also a sense of detachment. I think with a lot of entertainment where people have like jobs where they're like, you know, whatever it is, like whether they're, you know, agents or, you know, CEOs and they, or, or they're regular, they seem to have regular jobs, but they live in like supernaturally gigantic apartments and cities. And it just, it seems detached from a re an approachable reality for most people. Yeah. And so like him focusing on people living in kind of like pretty dismal apartments, like working shitty jobs. Like Mm -hmm. that's where most of us are for the most part, you know, like we, we were like, there seems to be a sense of like, I deserve better, you know? And like, as, as the sort of death of the middle class forces us to reconcile with what we're, where we actually are. Like, that's where a movie like this, that isn't didactic actually sort of like takes in the world around it with like, you know, as ugly as strip mall sprawl is like, there's something also sad about it kind of like looking wastelandishly ghost town, like, you know, like, and there, there's just a sort of like atrophying and a death that this movie is chronicling that I think is kind of that there, there's a sobering that happens in watching stuff like this. And I think it's as thing in, in the extreme culture we're in for something to not be didactic is pretty interesting. Yeah. You know, and like, and it, it may feel like it's its sense of feeling unforced may feel slight. I think that's that's almost a disservice, and like maybe maybe that's like imposing too much credit on it. But like, 
I think there is something, there is a nice reprieve that the movie does offer. And to like, you know, if you're, if, if we're trying to counter the hyperbole of the praise, that's not to discredit the movie and what it does offer, which is like a strong ensemble, a strong sense of like the death of a certain way of life and a, like of a middle class and of a possibility. And then and it's like, not depressing. Like it, it is, yeah. if you think about it, but the movie has life to it. it because it gets at that, you know, you and I, before we start a podcast, we're, we're often talking about some bullshit we had to deal with at work. You know, it's the stuff that you talk about yeah. with friends. You, you relate to about it. This movie brings that to life in a very nuanced way. And that's what I think is so perfect about the ending. Yeah. You know, is just that like <clears throat> there, there's something so like it's, it's not a plot point that it ends on like a, Oh, like it, it ends on a perfect character kind of like departure point. Mm. And like, there's like David Gordon green was always good at that of having these like poetic buttoning moments that really like kind of leave you kind of like reeling as you exit the theater. If you go to the theater, you probably don't. Um, (laughs) But you know, like that, that's what was just so like, I actually, you know, I watched this as a screener link and I like drew it back and watched that like last two minutes, like a couple times. Very nice. I was like, this is so, this is so great. I'm so glad. Yeah. It's a great yell into the void in many ways. <laughs> oh, you blew it. Yeah. It really, um, yeah, it, it's like the antithesis of what became so like there, you know, a movie that can, you know, takes on like a similar a, a confronting a banality, but garden state, a movie that yeah. like really, when it came out, it really like resonated for a window of time with people like, you know, it really like hit the zeitgeist. And then like, you know, pretty quickly, it was just so cringingly like hard to take. Yeah. But, like now watching it, I feel like I would like, pinch into a black hole if like through cringing i would just be like, and then just vanish and see who exists. <laughs> like oh god like it's just like it's that embarrassing at this point it's true it's like the forrest gump of 2004 uh, <laughs> uh. but like so this movie has a similar moment howling into the vo- literally howling into the void and it's like and it's perfect it's like what what was eye rolling about one movie 14 years ago is now the perfect, you know, like buttoning moment for another, you know? So there you go. We found, we found some things to praise and hopefully not too hyperbolically about this movie, you know, like it's, uh, it's, it's, I mean, I'll put it this way. Like if the world we live in now in terms of theatrical releases for movies like this is, you know, there's very little we can do about it except, you know, go to the theater and watch the movies you want to see made at theaters. There's of course that, but like if this, if this system is being designed where a movie like support the girls is one of the rare small movies of its ilk that gets any theatrical play. If that's just the marketing, the sort of pre-release hype pre-release the the release hype that then leads to its vod life and if that helps movies like this really get a bump or actually get noticed when they become rentable or streamable that is a good thing and i can see how that can be a a part of the ecosystem that works you know people Mm -hmm. like you and me can see these in the theater if, if we're in a city that has those um and 
that's great. But, um, you know, of course we'd love them to have actual, like a longer window where like an audience could be found, but that, that time just doesn't exist for these movies anymore. It seems like. And while that's like worth lamenting, it's there, this could be a, a system that, that works in theory in some ways, you know? So like, yeah, Every S. Craig Zoller movie so far has gotten what you were talking about, the Brawl and Cell Block 99 release, where you got it, but I never, it never came to Portland, nor did Bone Tomahawk. I would love to see those in a theater. But yeah. there was enough attention from those small releases that led people like you and me and others to seek out that movie, both of yeah. those. Um, and that's, uh, I think that's a great example to look at for what could be the future for stuff like Support the Girls and, and other. Bujalski question mark movie releases because it's either that or he does do the sort of Joe Swanberg Netflix thing where I really like what Swanberg's done with that show easy that he does on there where he took his mumblecore style and filmmaking style but really adapted it beautifully and has sort of enlarged it for um, uh, for the canvas that he has on a TV show and um I'd, it'd be cool if Andrew Bujalski did that. You know, I think he, his style does work that, but it does seem like this guy still really seems to be working hard at putting movies out. And uh, I want to support that just in general, but also like he's good at what he does and there's not much out there like it. That's um, as subtly skillful as this one. So, um, you know, support, support him, support the girls. Yeah. Good, good tag. Um, oh, you're welcome. <laughs> well, so similarly, you know, uh, we've got uh, a movie that exists in the sort of wasteland of abandoned America, of uh, forfeited middle class culture. Um, Arizona, a new movie, uh, directorial debut for Jonathan Watson, at least directorial feature. It just, It has a similar kind of like, sad emptiness to its landscape um as like support the girls and but it's like a much grimmer faster dark comedy mm. um and it's got uh danny mcbride mm-hmm. is, um you know one of one of the leads i think he was originally slated to direct it and then he uh ah. handed over reins to jonathan watson and you know it was written by luke del tradici who like both i think both director and writer were primarily known for tv and like this is a this is a movie that exists as a movie like you know maybe you could tease it out as like a a series like a short series one off you know the way you know like a mini series but why you know like it's it works you know really well as like a streamlined fast-paced like moment to moment bitterly dark comedy and um but there's just this sense of of it existing in that weird sort of middle realm of like a movie like this because it has you know it's in the tradition of a coen brothers dark comedy i don't know if you see that sort of uh, oh i had that written down in my notes for sure right (laughs) but like those used to be pretty common like and not not to you know marginalize this movie at all but like that that used to exist in a way that was kind of understandable to a given audience like oh this is that type of movie you know like it may it may not have cracked like the top five but it could have done decently Mm -hmm. and like this movie you know with its flaws still has a clip to it that's pretty impressive and then on you know again like another strong ensemble with uh 
you know, Rosemary DeWitt is the lead. She plays uh, Cassie as the real estate agent kind of like sucked into this, like, you know, uh, trajectory of violence and mayhem. David Alan Greer is in it. Um, Luke Wilson pops up in a really memorable Wilson. role. Yeah. Well, yeah. Like I, I miss him. Me you too. know, he, he was on, uh, what was that show? En- um, Enlightenment, right? Enlightened. Yeah. yeah. Oh, enlightened. Yes. <laughs> oh man. En- his en- episodes were the best on that show too. He's right. Incredible. Yeah. 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 Like, he's just got this kind of like, uh, it, this this weird tragic kind of dimness to him, not in terms of his intelligence, but in just in terms of his like his energy kind of waning. There's like a there's a there's a burden quality to Luke Wilson that I think has always been there. You know, like you know, in terms of like his his sadness, even in early roles like Bottle Rocket, has just kind of like gr- he's grown into himself in terms of like just being world weary. You know, yeah. like. <laughs> He's like a great mascot for world weariness in a weird way. Um, yeah, he wears his aging very well. Yeah. yeah. So like it's 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 just like a pretty strong ensemble. Like Danny McBride uh, as the kind of m- you know main antagonist in the movie who becomes like uh, an unwitting murderer who just like keeps doubling down on like you know things he's he's done and like that that's what reminds me of the Coen Brothers is in terms of like, you know, it's like violence in the hands of the incapable, you mm-hmm. know? And so it's like, it sets a new kind of terrain of, you know, like pe- people who are incapable, there's just a whole new set of drama that comes with like having wreaked the havoc that they've wreaked. And Danny McBride as somebody who's, you know, like we comedically know and love him because of his fits of rage. And like this, it's a it's largely a comedic performance, but it does tip into like, you know, menace enough of the time that it's like this interesting kind of like back and forth between laughing at him and being genuinely concerned until the last stretch where he becomes, you know, like that unfortunate kind of superhuman antagonist, you know? Yeah, slightly. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, just by the fact that he one of my favorite parts of like not just this movie, but of like movies lately is he has a back spasm yeah. while yelling. That is so hilarious to me that through the rest of the movie, he's like, ah, ah, like, <laughs> and like, I don't know why that's so funny. Partly because I've had similar back spasms from nothing where I'm just like, why the fuck? And like, it's just like so crippling and debilitating to like, like to answer your phone and have a back spasm. Like what, what the fuck just happened? Like, yeah. is this what getting old is like? Yeah, dude, I've been dealing with back problems for the better part of a year and it just keeps <laughs> coming back and it like runs down my leg. I got that sciatica thing. So to have it yeah. happen in a movie where I can actually laugh about it because I'm relating and my <laughs> back is probably nowhere as bad a pain as he's portraying it in this movie. But it's right. like, you do realize you're like, fuck yeah, it's debilitating. But to like mine humor from that in yeah. this absurdist scenario i mean it it works and that's yeah danny mcbride i think that's like his specialty he he he, those fits that he can portray um that where he's equally portraying the sort of like inherent pathetic nature of his character while still going over the top with like his like vitriol and his like hubris you know (laughs) yeah he's confident even though he's stupid as hell right like that's the the yeah, Danny McBride thing, yeah. He's such a like, yeah, beautifully. He's just such a like a beautiful comedic actor in that sense. He's so just like generous as a presence. I think he's so good at, um, and this was something that I think Eastbound and Down really cracked the code on quite well for its run. 
Um, and it's the stuff he does with um, Jody Hill and David Gordon Green, who I think both of them are executive producers on this movie. It's it's something it's a, they, they seem to have shepherded. Um, yeah, yeah. It's a Rough House like, co-production, which is their production company. Oh, uh, right on. Yeah, so there you go. It's like zeroing in on, like, there are a lot of, unfortunately, white dudes in this country out there, like these Danny McBride characters that he taps into. But, like, what I like is that he makes, he never, they never, like, um soften these people yet they still find humor in just doubling down on the awfulness the reality that these are this is an awful person or uh, a mostly awful person but then danny mcbride has this sort of teddy bear charm to him that like (laughs) fucks with your head because you're like i want to like this guy so there's a really great complexity to him as a performer but i agree i think the cast all around in this movie really like makes it work you know uh i i I liked the the David Allen Greer. You, I think you mentioned him, but he he yeah, pops yeah. up and has a very brief, but I thought um, memorable part of the movie. And it it started when when he starts to arrive and the violence really starts to erupt in the movie. Like um, I thought of the Coen Brothers pretty instantly with this movie too. But like what this movie is more like in terms of like don't go in thinking you're gonna get a Coen Brothers quality, you know, and that's I, I don't I'm gonna come off like I'm knocking Arizona. I just mean it like the Coen Brothers are singular, you know, they're like some of the best filmmakers alive. So it is in that realm, but it's more like the type of movies you were saying were getting released more in the '90s, like Very Bad Things. Remember that one? Yeah, the Peter Berg movie. I'm not a huge fan of that movie. No, I hate that movie. <laughs> yeah, it's well, it's a hateful movie, right? Yeah, in a, in a, it's an ugly movie. And Arizona, at least, is I would say in that tier, but is ugly while also finding like it. it there, there's it, it kind of achieves a balance more than very bad things does. Although it does escalate in a way where it's like one murder leads to another murder, and then like you're laughing at people. You're supposed to be laughing at some people dying. You know. You're laughing at the whore. Um, I think that this one achieves a better balance. Um, You're right, though, that a lot of these types of movies were much more common. Where, like, you know, whoever it was in the character realm, like, usually, you know, not rich people, but, like, people trying to either achieve wealth or covering up crimes and just how one leads to the other. Um, A Simple Plan was a really good Sam Raimi movie. More of a drama, but, like... I'm I'm reminded of a lot of these movies from that time that um, Arizona, I'm, I'm glad like, yeah, it'd be cool like that. There's another movie out like it, but um, yeah, it's another. Well, it, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I think that like there, there's something that that's pretty like playful about the setting of it, like setting a movie in the not so distant past of like the financial crisis and the sort of housing market bubble bursting. Like there, there's all of this, kind of mayhem happening in this movie in a largely unoccupied uh, set of like neighborhoods. So it's like, it's set in Arizona, obviously. (laughs) And um, there's like a barrenness to Arizona already. Um, But now like most of these houses in these neighborhoods that the movie is sort of like living in are abandoned. So there's like a, there's a, a weird kind of like openness and desolation to it. That's I think pretty playful and like it is it, it is a movie that like introduces a tone that used to be a lot more common and familiar that feels like less i don't know like it doesn't feel dated necessarily but like i think at its weakest it's just uncertain of where its strengths are in terms of its tone right and um 
so I think like it's it it has enough strong moments like the opening to the movie where uh, Rosemary DeWitt's character Cassie is like showing a house to you know people who are skeptical of like you know the, the kind of weird wasteland she's trying to like you know market to them and like someone there's like a commotion next door that she has to run in and check on yeah and like it's 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 a severely bitterly dark comedic moment it's awful and then it like plays for like a kind of like slapstick horror kind of moment (laughs) it's a suicide attempt that like it just imagine the imagine the hilarity of that (laughs) um but like there there is something that's like i don't know there's like I think because there's something acerbic in the tone and something kind of like caustic and, you know, like the 1990s, like there was, there was a, a grouchiness and a mean spiritedness that almost, that felt like there was almost a luxury in indulging in it. And now because we feel like we're driven by a fucking acerbic mean spiritedness in our culture and it's inescapable, it's like harder to sort of like narrow in on that as a tone that you want to kind of like, fuck with you know what i mean like so like it feels less like a playful reprieve and more like a cementing in a nightmare we can't wake up from you know and so like we were talking about this i think with uh jody hill and danny bride's last like netflix movie legend of a white tailed deer hunter did i remember that correctly legacy otherwise yes legacy what did i say legend legend god damn it um some legend going on i guess it could be called the legendary legacy of a white tailed deer hunter get gatherer um <laughs> so so like the types that danny mcbride typically plays like you know that it was it was a caricature and character type that like was ripe for dissection and satire for like years. And now it feels like because our country is being run by what feels like those sort of hateful types, (laughs) it feels less playful to investigate them. Mm. And like, I just feel it's, it's weird because like, I think enough of like this movie works on a genre level, you know, like there's, there's a sense of escalation and it's like just a sort of fast paced crime, dark comedy. And like the joke of not being able to find a house because all the houses look alike, the sense (laughs) of like, you know, Luke Wilson driving around trying to figure out which neighborhood it is because all the names of the neighborhood sound alike. (laughs) Like there's a level of playful satire at work that I think sort of, feeds into the genre elements of it just being a straightforward like comedy thriller right right but it's like there was something about watching like danny mcbride mid back spasm hunting mother and daughter through an empty neighborhood that's like teetering between comedy and genuine sort of menace and terror you know, there was something about the emptiness of the landscape that was like well this is like the emptiness of the type of like this is they're like walking through the terrain of like the genre itself. Like this genre kind of doesn't exist anymore, you know, like, and there was, there was something just kind of like generously playful about that. Um, But yeah, this is, this is another movie that's kind of like getting a very small release. Like we said, we're not even sure if it's coming out uh, in Portland at all. It's playing uh, at the Lemley theaters in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you and I watched it as a link 
but I have a feeling that like when this played at Sundance to a crowd, it probably played similarly well to, you know, a lot of the crowd pleasing movies that RLJE puts out, you know, like, like the Craig Zoller movies, like, cause there's like just moments that this movie hits comedically, bitterly comedically, <laughs> you know, like the scene where, uh, <laughs> David Allen Greer is introduced like he walks into a <laughs> what he thinks is the house he's supposed to be going into turns it's the turns out it's the wrong house and something goes horribly wrong <laughs> and it's like you know I watched it by myself on a computer and like screamed so like yeah like it worked you could probably see it working you know well on a on a big crowd but it's like what used to draw a pretty sizable audience like seems less and less likely anymore well, I'm I'm looking here, and Arizona, I'm guessing, will almost definitely not make it to Portland or probably other cities because it is actually you can rent it on Amazon Prime. Oh, it's two dollars cheaper there. It's four ninety nine for that, and then YouTube and Google Play, the kind of usual VOD spots, has it. So maybe this was a day and date thing, which means it's like L.A., probably Chicago, New York, and mm-hmm. it'll be that sort of pre or the the pre VOD release mark you know the theater is the marketing for that uh, essentially yeah. Um, but yeah i mean that's where a film festival like sundance where is that's where it premiered this year yeah yeah that's i mean that is the the big pre-release hype for that movie now is a festival and your your best chance to see something like this in a theater and that's good that means festivals will still exist and they have a real like a real purpose now to really like shepherd shepherd these movies and show them on a big screen um, so, you know, that I bet it would have been a blast to watch this movie. I would imagine it'd be one of the fun, like late night movies, maybe not like a midnight movie, but nine o'clock, 10 o'clock. This is, this is one of the ones I would choose to go see at a festival. Um, right. you know, like, yeah. Uh, so yeah, it has, it has a lot of elements that are missing from the cinema these days. And uh, yeah, I mean, I think it does get more naughty for these filmmakers like Jody Hill and and Danny McBride to explore the like mean spirited comedy and character types that they've really latched onto and zero in on. But um, you know, however it needs to be done, uh, and this director too, you know, seems promising. The movie has like a visual style to it. There, he's a TV director, but that doesn't mean you could. It certainly seems like he wanted to make a movie with this. You know, like it has movie qualities to it and. And it's it's a fun movie while also being, you know, pretty pretty fucked up. Uh, the other thing I wanted to mention is this one's on the other end of the spectrum compared to support the girls in terms of critics that I that I follow, uh, specifically on Letterboxd. I have like people I follow uh, on there and this one got mostly like kind of one two star reviews. So um, it's very strange. I don't think it's deserving of that either. It's more in that middle ground again. So what yeah, do you think I, that is? Do you think that because a movie like support the girls is just uh, it's not mean spirited. Whereas Arizona is a very mean spirited movie. And I think some, I I don't want, I don't think that's everything, but I think that's a lot of it. Like there's a quality to this movie where it's like, you have to agree in some ways that like, Oh, these people are all fucking idiots because they fell for, they were duped. You know, the housing crisis is not just the government's fault. It's, it's people's fault who fell for it. And like, that's a kind of simplistic reading on a very complex thing that happened, but you know, you kind of have to accept that. And maybe some people don't want to, I don't know. I'm speculating. I don't know. Yeah. I, yeah. I also think that just in terms of like, uh, there, 
there there's like something that you could yeah there's there's something aspirational and something kind of like uh you know that's something that Brad Easton Ellis often bemoans is like the aspirational narrative yeah and like you know there's something that is uh endearing about support the girls that they they aren't you know they aren't a punchline and in like a dark comedy like Arizona a lot of the people are a punchline yeah I think uh the the sort of arc of the main character is to sort of like find out where her true kind of humanity is survive this idiotic set of circumstances <laughs> and but it's it's still largely a sort of punchline driven movie like as much as it's mayhem driven it's also punchline driven which it feels mean spirited and like less you're you're sort of less able to sort of argue on its uh significance in a mean mean spirited <laughs> culture <laughs> you know like you're just like if you're arguing for the relevance of something's existence well it's just like well why should we listen to this why should we watch this uh well um it really pokes fun at um america's sense of entitlement and uh you know leads them down a path of you know being murdered and oh okay i don't i don't need that in my life right now okay maybe you're right it's true i liked it though <laughs> that's good that's good we're stomping for these movies we need to yeah yeah well i mean so that one's on vod as i said you can you can find it now no excuses if you uh if you're listening to this and and you want to see it it's it's i mean do it can't go wrong five bucks on amazon prime come on yeah or just you know sift through your your watch list and not watch anything (laughs) that's a worthy use of your time as well (laughs) yes it is it is well joe this podcast has been a very worthy uh use of my time i hope the same for you yeah yeah definitely i got to say pussy on this episode so i'm excited (laughs) you did well done uh so yeah what do you say should we wrap this one up Let's do it. So just chill to the next episode. All right. Episode 182 of Adjust Your Tracking is coming to an end. You can find us and uh, our other shows at theplaylist.net. We're, of course, a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, and there are other shows on that same feed. Wherever you listen to your podcasts, you'll find us on the Playlist Podcast Network. You'll find the Playlist Podcast some over under movies. You'll find Indie Beat. Um, we've got other shows. So, uh, let us know what you think of our show or any of the other podcasts we do. That would be very, very nice. You can email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. Uh, any shout outs, anything you want to put out there, Joe? Um, thanks for listening, everybody. You know, it's nice. It's nice to know you're out there. Yeah, it is nice to know. Yeah. We've, uh, I love when we get nice responses and the fact that I know people are listening. It is, it's good. It's very good. Um, before we sign off, Joe, you, you had mentioned that, what was the reference you said? Oh, it would be the Forrest Gump of that time. What was the movie you were talking about? I already forgot. Garden State. Garden State. Garden what, what's going to be the next Forrest Gump of our time? I mean, I'm putting you on the spot, but I had to ask. Oh. I know it's a tough uh, question. I, just, I, I think we're in that sort of period where it's like you would you would pine for a Forrest Gump, a sort of just like. <laughs> People want it. But, yeah, people, it would be just the gritty sort of <laughs> thing people are clamoring for anymore. Um, so I don't know if there is a, a parallel. 
a contemporary parallel. There might not be. We're just we're we don't deserve a Forrest Gump anymore. That's the real lesson to take away. Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Joe. Thanks.